darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. In 1904 of the vulgar era, the world was destroyed by fire and a discarnate entity dictated a book in three chapters to Aleister Crowley, who himself only begrudgingly, and after several years, came to accept what the book had to say. We'll dig into Crowley's account of the circumstances surrounding the reception of the Book of the Law, including the staggering synchronicities and potential proofs he recorded, as we look at Chapter 7 of The Equinox of the Gods. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Today we are back to talk about the equinox of the gods. <laughs> this is the book four, well I should say volume four of book four. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Uh, so this is, uh, we're going to specifically be looking at chapter seven and uh, it's essentially detailing the circumstances surrounding the reception of the Book of the Law and anything basically Crowley can throw at us regarding that. The uh, reason I wanted to look at this is that we had done the introduction to the Book of the Law last time, and that promised that forthcoming would be a volume that, that talked in more detail about some of the proofs for the spiritual provenance of the text that this was not actually written by Aleister Crowley but um by a uh, a non-embodied entity well that's probably perhaps pushing it but a a non a discarnate entity uh called Iwas which is latin for defleshed <laughs> <laughs> really uh cuz i i well that's cool <laughs> um or unfleshed, maybe, unfleshed. is uh, more appropriate. Uh, I don't know when unfleshed is technically appropriate, but... <laughs> Gross. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and so um, that, that promised this, and so we went through some of this to see what would be the most uh, in- interesting reading, and it, it's not what I thought it was going to be. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of... Uh, there is some gematria stuff in here, um, but it doesn't actually deal with what I would consider to be like the ciphers mm-hmm. in the book. Or uh, and it and it does talk a little bit about how there's predictive material, but it doesn't say what is predicted uh, exactly. Except um, yeah, he it, takes a couple of pot shots, but uh... it, predi- it predicts war, and so then we see war. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't do that thing where it says like every uh, publication of the book has been nine months ahead of a major international conflict. Yeah, that was a that's prediction one, to come later. That's one of the things that that is talked about. It's not explicit in here. Um, uh, this is more like uh, uh, there's some stuff in here about how Crowley, not in this chapter, but about how Crowley tested Rose, proving that. 
that that she was spiritually inspired before he uh, took her advice about how to receive the book. And then there's other things in here about how uh, one of the major proofs is that it predicts uh, a, a son to come who will have more insights. And then by, by now, by 1920, when this is, uh, when, well, sections of this were completed, uh, Crowley had already met Achad and Achad had already fulfilled this promise. So um, even though we're not going to get uh, a stab at those long, you know, alphanumeric codes or various other things, there are, uh, there are some useful proofs in here, evidences that uh, Crowley's using to say that this is not a forgery. This is, in fact, something I've received. But it's it's it, it, what it, it's mostly the story of of how the reception was was undertaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you enjoy reading this? Uh, oh, good this question. Time? This is one of those portions that uh, I guess uh, portions isn't the word, but uh, this kind of material you find if you if you read a lot of Thelemic stuff, you find yourself reading this territory over and over again. Uh, so it can become a slog very easily because uh, I mean it's like reading about Crowley's mountain climbing adventures you know it's like okay I've I've been there I know, I know what this is about so uh, it's easy to become a little bit blase about it but um, as usual doing it for one of these deep dips is really fun because it gives some kind of purpose behind going back into it besides um, um, I guess I should say I noticed how uh, commonly I'll read through the text and not really completely grasp everything or not really completely, you know, I'll read a paragraph and be like, okay, fine, and just keep moving on, but not really put it into context. Right. You know? So this is really nice for that. I, um, I, I found, of course, I know the story, right? The story of the reception, uh, you know, you pick up any biography and it's in there. You read through some of the confessions, you read through some of the um, the the equinox material. There are so many places where the story of the reception is 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 sort of told and retold. Um, and I found reading the I found this to be unfamiliar to me somehow. Mm. Um, and I, no, I know I've read it before because some things that I've been looking for turn out to be in here, mm. like this uh, cute thing where one of his proofs for the. Um, spiritual authorship of the book of the law is that I promise the spelling mistakes are not my own. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I just think that's cute. So I wanted to remember what the reference is and it's in here. So I know I've read it before. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it felt like a first, a first read um, to me. And then, and you know, all this time I thought Rose Kelly had been the one dictating the book of the law to him. And it turns out it wasn't because <laughs> oh, I just had to read the text and <laughs> Dar- Darren is trying to make me angry. It's, uh, which is fine. I'm allowed to be angry. Uh, no, uh, there's, it's explicit in here. It's, it's, <laughs> couldn't that, be more explicit throughout, really. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that he's alone. Uh, there's one specific quotation where one of the things that people who believe Rose Kelly dictated the book of the law will point at is this passage where, is if you look at the manuscript, um, there's a place where the penmanship changes. You know, some things are struck out and 
and edited, even though one should not change uh, so much as the style of a letter. Um, there are places where the the text is struck out, and someone else's handwriting, who spooky, has 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 made corrections. And he just explains it. He just says that he failed to hear the spirit appropriately in a couple of places. And later on, him and uh, Rose. Uh, do more spirit work together. She invokes Horus and then makes the... He invokes Horus for her and then she uses her spirit contact to to make the corrections. And and this is supposed to be evidence, uh, more evidence of, of the fact that the reception was made through um, a genuine spirit contact. A because, discarnate entity. A discarnate entity because, because he... Uh, speaks. Uh, he receives the text from Iowa's when he's alone, and he's hearing a voice in the corner of the room, mm-hmm. which is a man's voice but without accent. So if she was able to affect that, fine. But <laughs> and, and then uh, and then later, Rose uh, uh, makes some corrections, evoking the same invoking the same spirit and um and uh, and and Crowley says how she was not in the room yeah. but that's not he's not that's not a he's not genuinely asking it's a rhetorical question he's trying to impress upon you that that the spirit interceded and helped her to to make those corrections and and even and if even if you disbelieve him in this right even if you think that um that the idea of spirit contact is is too woo and that you know the book was written uh through crowley's contact with his own subconscious or something like that it still doesn't mean rose has to be in the room it just means she has to write down anything and he likes it (laughs) so um uh so it's no evidence that she was that she was there um, especially when he says explicitly she wasn't there <laughs> and, 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 you know, whose handwriting is it? Well, Crowley says it was Rose's. So yeah. like, there's no mystery. There's the, yeah, the two no passages mystery. where this happens. The first one is in uh, chapter one and it's, uh, the five pointed star with the circle in the middle and the circle is red. The second instance is in chapter three. The, and she adds in the words cough Nia mm-hmm. where, uh, he didn't quite make it out. Uh, that's it. Yeah, and there's another place where um, where there's a correction made in Crowley's hand, uh, and it, you know that's supposed to be verboten. You know, change not even the style of the letter, but the spirit specifically says, "Write this in whiter words, but move on." Mm-hmm. He's written something down. He doesn't understand it. The spirit says, "It doesn't matter. You try to understand it. Clean it up." <laughs> but so that there's one place in the text where he has specific dispensation to correct it, and he corrects it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, and then there's also the uh, the two passages from the Stelly of Revealing, or his paraphrase of it, that uh, he inserts later on. But he's told to insert yes. them explicitly, and it has like portions of it to, as for reference purposes in the manuscript. Yeah, the, and the other thing I thought thought was cute the the thing I found most convincing actually is uh, when Crowley's trying to say this is a re- a received teaching. It's not a um, it's not a forgery. I've done forgeries before, yeah. <laughs> so you know what they look like. I thought, like, oh, that's actually that's actually quite compelling. Uh, there's a there's a list of of uh, of of his previous forgeries, and uh, he's right; they're nothing like this. So, should we kind of try to just ex- just 
quickly tell the story of the reception before we go through this, assuming that people haven't heard it, or should we, uh, or should we just start going through the text? It's, uh, um, I guess we can give a quick rundown, but I don't want to belabor it too much because, like I say, this is all over the place. Um, we had a little bit of it uh, hinted at in the introduction to the Book of the Law, but essentially he's in Cairo with his wife. They're on their honeymoon that's been lasting for months and months. <laughs> <laughs> I think they went to Cairo on the way by, then they came back to Cairo on the way back. And um, so... When they returned, they uh, he invoked or he evoked the uh, the fairies sylphs. Sylphs. He so he's trying to um, he, tw- he so so Crowley's given up magic work almost entirely by his own uh, suggestion here because he's frustrated with the Golden Dawn and and uh, starts to feel like it's all nonsense. He's uh, operating with a kind of Buddhist mindset where not only doesn't he believe in spirits, but he sort of doesn't believe in anything. Uh, you know, uh, all things are projections of his of his mind. He's trying to understand a, um, a, a more correct relationship uh, with a world that doesn't exist. He's living in a world of illusion. Um, uh, but sort of because, you know, when you're in a new relationship, you want to show off. Uh, at some point he does, he uses Liber Samach, just the, the, the air, the airy paragraphs of Liber Samach, uh, the bornless ritual, in the chamber of the Great Pyramid, apparently, to show Rose the sylphs, and, uh, and sort of nothing happens. And then later on, a couple of months later, he, he tries it again, and, um, and this time... Uh, again, it sort of it sort of squibs out, uh, but she, rather than being impressed by the sylphs, just starts talking and won't shut up with this um, <laughs> uh, with this kind of uh, 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 schizophrenic insistence that that they want your attention, they are calling you, they are calling you. It's all about the child, and uh, he finds this quite annoying. But after several days, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't kind of calm down. So he, he will interrogate uh, her as if she's a spirit, um, get lots of correct answers, um, and begrudgingly admit that that's spooky enough to pay attention to. She will then suggest uh, a, a ritual structure for him uh, on the spring equinox. He does the the supreme invocation and then uh 22 days later he begins receiving the text of the of, of the book of the law uh one hour from noon to one on three successive days he goes into a room alone <laughs> hears a disembodied voice and writes and even though he will at other times in his career have profoundly inspired writing. He never again has this sense of a voice speaking to him uh, when he's alone. He does lots and lots of, as we're saying, uh, magic work through mediums. And he also does uh, magic work while he'll try to connect to a spirit and channel himself. But never again in his whole career before or since will he hear a voice and take, take dictation. And so the material that we've chosen to look at today talks about what the experience of taking dictation was like and, uh, and, and how from looking at the text, you know, you know, you know that this, uh, 
that this story of the reception has you can you can see that this story of the reception has a profound truthiness because just from reading the text you you see things that are that would be weird if he had written it himself mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah and um <clears throat> it it is pretty remarkable when you put yourself in his shoes uh it's easy to be cynical it's easy to uh look at this and say okay well he's clearly making shit up uh or whatever whatever the case may be but if we suspend disbelief if we go along for the ride, we can see that he is very intelligent and self-aware. And in the way he's describing the circumstances and his own experience of it, he's doing his best, it seems, to uh, be very frank and self-conscious about what the actual circumstances were. And uh, he's right in the sense that um, if this is what he believed it to be, which is communication with a discarnate being that had knowledge that's uh, beyond anything we can comprehend and wrap our minds around in terms of just how, you know, some of this stuff is possible, how it could be, how it could work by basic cause and effect, by the rules of cause and effect. Um, And yeah, just the fact that this is verification, as he says, uh, until now, man's soul was a guess it's like this is important stuff this is the kind of thing that uh, okay if we if we want to play with this for a bit this is pretty serious this is like a you know not just the ravings of a madman if there's some of these proofs going on here um here's here's what he says in the the sort of first section of chapter seven he says no forger could have prepared so complex a set of numerical and literal puzzles as to leave himself a devoted to the solution for years after b baffled by a simplicity which when disclosed leaves one gasping at its profundity c enlightened only by progressive initiation or by accidental events apparently disconnected with the book, which occurred long after its publication. D. Hostile, bewildered, and careless even in the face of independent testimony as to the power and clarity of the book and of the fact that by its light other men have attained the loftiest summits of initiation in the tithe of the time which history and experience would lead one to expect and E, angrily unwilling to proceed with that part of the work appointed for him, which is detailed in chapter 3. Even when the course of events on the planet, war, revolution, and the collapse of the social and religious system of civilization proved plainly to him the veracity of the text. Uh That's my own uh, parenthetical, the veracity of the text, because he goes on. Um, uh, But so... The proofs here, he says, uh, there's a set of numerical puzzles which he had to study for years in order to solve them. Uh, when he did solve them, he was baffled by the simplicity of, of the solution. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then a, a couple of points about spiritual progress, that, that people reading the book have been able to use it as a springboard to very, very uh, profound states of realization, uh, so that 
in a way, the providence of the book sort of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It has the power to do the things that it purports to do. So, um, uh, and 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 then yes, he he says if it were a forgery, he would not be so mad at it. He's angrily <laughs> unwilling to do the things that it tells him to do, even when you know there's there's work detailed in chapter three, which. Uh, you know, he he looks around and he sees that, of course, the god of war is the king of the earth in the, you know, at least in the early part of the, the 20th century. And he still won't take up the banner that's been put upon him. And, and you know, if you're going to be, if you want to be a spiritual leader and you forge a text that makes you look like a spiritual leader, you don't, don't then refuse for the next 12 <laughs> years to, to become the thing that you're supposedly pretending to be. Yeah, I mean, looking at it from the context of uh, Crowley's actual life unfolding is a bit of a different standpoint as well, because uh, it's easy from our standpoint now, him being long dead and his entire life having been a uh, completed and closed book. Thinking of it in terms of, okay, he, he uh, received this Book of the Law uh, when he was 28 and a half years old as he says. Um, and yeah, so you could just imagine that's your, that's your Saturn return coming on. But uh, he would go on to live until uh, the age of the ripe old age of 72. And so he was watching the events of the world unfold throughout that time and uh, just increasingly buying into the book of the law because of that, watching that unfolding. Here's um, uh, something I like that I think is insightful. We, we we're trying to dust over the surface of this idea of the of the um aeonic cycles in in thelema and here's another interesting way to parts it it continues on from what i quoted before proved plainly to him that whether he liked it or no rahor quit was indeed the lord of the aeon the crowned and conquering child whose innocence meant no more than the inhuman cruelty and wantonly senseless destructiveness as he avenged isis our mother the earth and the heaven for the murder and mutilation of osiris the man her son so two things i like about that he, uh, the 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 innocence of the crowned and conquering child mean no more than cruelty and wantonly senseless destructiveness. So uh, um, an innocence uh, that means a lack of self awareness about uh, not a lack of self awareness, a lack of moral sense that that uh, that this child is able to just rave destructively through the world, uh, um, conquering in the way that it. It says he conquers in the book of the law, and um, and that the that the reason for his violence is is that he's trying to enact the revenge of his mother uh, on the earth because the earth destroyed and mutilated her son uh, uh, Osiris, which is not the way the the, the myth goes. Uh, uh, Isis and Osiris are maybe brother and sister, maybe uh, spouses, um, and then uh, Horus is the son. But in this, because of the procession of the equinoxes, Isis being first and Osiris being second, and now currently we're in the Horus period, um, Crowley's imagining that Osiris is is the son uh, who for the last 2,000 years has been uh, mutilated by the earth and now uh, the 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 crown and conquering child has to uh, has to avenge that two thousand years of mutilation. Uh, yeah, in a sense, you could think of it as the last two. The previous aeon is kind of like a death obsession, 
in the sense that uh, it's like negating life with every every breath drawn in order to uh, attempt to replace it with something beyond that's supposedly supposed to be granted in return. And so this is responding to that as a, uh, a saying yes to life. Uh yeah, saying yes to life in all of its aspects, though, because the destructiveness of the forces is emphasized here. Um, again, Crowley goes on, and I, I, I promise I have not marked out every single paragraph in here as something to read. I've been more selective than I was with the introduction. But this carries on. The War of 1914 and its sequels have proved even to the dullest statesman beyond the wit of even the most subtly sophistical theologians to gloss that death is not an unmixed benefit either to the individual or to the community, that force and fire of leaping manhood are more useful to a nation than cringing respectability and emasculate servility, that genius goes with courage and the sense of shame and guilt with defeatism. Um, people uh, are, are intimidated by the violence of the Book of the Law, and somewhere, uh, I think, in magic without tears say so you disagree with iowa's so do we all right of course it's uh, it's awful mm-hmm. um but uh the problem is he's not arguing he's telling you and uh, crowley has the immediate evidence you know within five years the first world war breaks out um and uh earlier than that after the first publication of Liber Al in uh 1909 i think in the equinox uh there's there's some other war which i forget now because of the profundity of world war one but some other war which seems quite big <laughs> yeah i think it was like a spanish civil war because he, he mentions that at one point uh, in one of the the commentaries um but there's uh the the brutalness of the conflict evidences the, the violence of Liber al really is really is 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 violence and it's uh, uh, and it's not nice, but it has predictive, it has predictive value, and it's it's mm-hmm. you know for for people looking uh, optimistically at, at the the turn of the new century, you know the all, all the sort of prosperity ahead of them in 1900 with uh, you know technological development and the expanding the expanding world and motor cars and airplanes and things that seem like they'll be very nice uh um i the, think uh, einstein's special theory of relativity was published in 1904 um so this is like this is a, like a good immediately indicator. an ant- anticipator of the um of of the atomic bomb in, yeah uh, and of relativity as a literal physical uh fact mm. uh so anyway, uh, you you, uh, you can't you can't ignore the horrible stuff because uh, because it, it's it's a, it's an intrinsic part not only of 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 Thelema but of Thelema because of the of the world we're living in under yeah, it's the, a, it's the an sovereignty intrinsic part of the world of the god of war. Uh, I wrote it hating it, he says, mm-hmm. also and, in this chapter. And there's this passage that he goes into following that, which is like really kind of, um, it seems a bit like bigging himself up because it's really glorifying himself, but the, uh, his point is kind of uh, distilled out of that in the end of it. 
because he says, This long digression is but to explain that I myself, who issue Liber Legis, am no fanatic partisan. Um, there is a little passage in there, though, that I really like, which um, is, uh, if I can find the right place to start it, he's talking about uh, when um, the law of Thelema really takes hold, when love designs and will executes the right whereby their god in man is offered to me, the beast, their god. The right whose virtue, making their god of their enthroned beast, leaves nothing, how so bestial, undivine. And of course this is like, you know, it, the first thing that comes to mind is ego inflation, but uh, that leaves nothing, how so bestial, undivine. I love that. Mm-hmm. It's really pointing out the the uh, the crux of this thing, you know. It's pantheism in the sense of finding that divinity is in all things. We see the um, uh, we see how Nietzsche ends up being uh, uh, later named as one of the the prophets of of Thelema, not just canonized as a Gnostic saint, but a but an anticipatory prophet of mm-hmm. Thelema because uh, this the Book of the Law really does really does sort of spiritualize um, even though Thelema, even though Nietzsche was sort of atheistic and anti-religious. I guess saying God is dead is not really atheistic. It's a position statement. <laughs> you know, I, I think with when it comes to that, I, I do need to say that with the God is dead statement. Um, it tends to be used out of context a lot because people just say, Nietzsche said God is dead. And no, Nietzsche cried out, you have killed God. Yeah. And this is what we've done. God is dead and we have killed him. Yes. <laughs> and this is like a very important point because uh, um, it, he he saw, Nietzsche saw himself as transitional. He saw himself as a prophet essentially of the philosophy of the future. Um, but... Uh, also, this idea of reintegrating the instincts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the in we've been talking a lot about Kabbalah today, so let's use the Kabbalistic model: the um, uh, nefesh being the animal soul, and the ruach being the human soul, and other levels of 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 um, successively more and more spiritual souls that enable us to have a relationship with God. Um, but uh, but even the nefesh. Uh, however, so be steel, uh, you know, still has um, the 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 spark of divinity is still part of the of the mm. picture. Uh, you know, man is the is the the microcosm of the divine instrument. So pe- people uh, who um, I'm listening to a podcast right now where they keep saying Malkuth is the dingleberry at the bottom of the tree of life. And if you don't know what dingleberry is, they mean like a hanging ball of shit. Uh, <laughs> and it's really, it's really not fair. And um, there, you know, the, the doctrine of the fall of man, uh, notwithstanding, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, e- even in, even in traditional Kabbalah, there's the microcosm and the macrocosm, and uh, and and man is made in the image of God, and uh, and and this attempt to reintegrate and and resorb our instinctual selves, the, uh, um, 
is a vital part of, of Thelema and something that, that Nietzsche also thought was, uh, was important. And, uh, you know, in a way, following Nietzsche, Freud and, and, and the, the history of uh, the, the, the invention of psychology become, become sort of a part of that as well, although I think Crowley does a better job <laughs> of, uh, of honoring the intent of, the, uh, of uh, honoring Nietzsche's intent than the psychologists do. I think all of the whole, his, the whole of the 20th century is just one meandering apology for Nietzsche, except <laughs> for Thelema. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Crowley describes himself as a, a great psychologist. Uh, and Nietzsche uh, says that about himself too. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, and I mean, like anytime somebody bigs themselves up, like uh, you know, most people are gonna kind of have a bad taste in their mouth about it. Makes me think of like something like Jerry Seinfeld, completely off topic, but this is a comic where uh, he comes off as being uh, very kind of you know nose in the air, kind of like too good for other people in some way, um, and. Uh, I kind of realized at some point, oh no, you know what? Um, the reason people get that is because so many comics are playing the underdog and Jerry just doesn't do that. He he just owns who he is. Jerry Seinfeld, I did not realize, is really, really into transcendentalism. Oh, is that right? Uh, and um, uh, the the only way, he says, that he was able to survive... Uh, eight years of making a situation comedy was that every day at lunch he would go off and do his 20 minutes of mantra work and then uh, they'd come back and he'd eat lunch on his feet between takes um, (laughs) because he had been and the transcendentalists are supposed to meditate twice a day um, and he says it wasn't until after he retired from doing the sitcom that somebody finally talked him into doing the morning meditation hmm. as well as the, as the daytime one. Uh, but, uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there because those people are a psych, that's a dangerous cult that unlike what we're doing, <laughs> but let's get uh, back to our, uh, dangerous third chapter of the book of the law. But, uh, but, but, uh, uh, Seinfeld strikes me as, in his brashness and self-confidence and his belief that stand-up comedy is the absolute best thing anyone can do for anything, anyone can do as being a, a, a sort of having a uniquely thelemic position. He's mm-hmm. found, not only has he found his own true will and he's doing that and doing nothing else <laughs> in, in, in this embrace of like stand-up comedy being the coolest possible thing and it's the thing that i've devoted my life to also um he was being interviewed by david letterman and david letterman was whining you know i'd wish i'd done something good for society and seinfeld says something like uh um why <laughs> like like you re- you'd rather be a mediocre immigration lawyer than the greatest late night host in the history of the form uh you know what what you've actually done is is achieve greatness and if you'd done anything else you know it, whether it was you know inherently more helpful like let's admit that uh, immigration lawyers are more helpful than late night hosts uh david letterman achieved perfection 
<laughs> as a late night host and uh and and the 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 mighty guru Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> tells his chila not to despair because you know even though uh e- even though uh, he may not have think may not believe that he helped people in achieving his own greatness uh he's disseminated more greatness throughout the world than if he'd only achieved mediocrity in some other field so anyway this is uh it's important for uh well you know it's relevant not to get hung up on uh on you know cockiness versus disparagement because yeah uh, um uh the scarlet woman is told to raise herself in pride and i think all people can take that advice absolutely yeah and make yourself shameless (laughs) before all people shameless yeah shame uh shameless before Before loud and adulterous and shameless before all men yes and uh yeah that's i mean that's a very good very good perspective to have and it does say something like i mean i'm talking about i used to disliked Jerry Seinfeld and thought he was arrogant and this sort of thing and had that turnaround. So I'm not talking about other people thinking that. I'm talking about me having that moment of clarity when I suddenly realized, okay, wait a second. And that's relevant because that uh, kind of underdog thing is one of those cultural things that have seeped into our brains and that we were raised on. When you become a hammer, you sort of see nails everywhere. Exactly. Uh, so the idea that, you know, I, I thought I was being a little bit stupid in seeing Jerry Seinfeld as like thalamite par excellence. <laughs> it's just the dumbest thing. But I just thought, it, I, just thought it, I was allowed to go on that tirade because uh, you coincidentally brought up exactly the same figure. You, you know? know what? It's relevant as far as I'm concerned because it's like we should be looking at things outside of this little closet wizard thing. You know, <laughs> if we want to think of this as something real that actually takes place in the real world it ought to be taking place in the real world and we ought to be able to look at real case studies of it that are outside of magic and outside of uh, technical language, you know? But back to the book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who wrote these words? Of course I wrote them. Ink on paper in the material sense, but they are not my words, unless I was be taken to be no more than my subconscious self or some part of it. In that case, my conscious self, being ignorant of the truth of the book, and hostile to most of the ethics and philosophy of the book, I was as a severely suppressed part of me. If so, the theorist must suggest a reason for this explosive yet ceremonially controlled manifestation, and furnish and explain the dovetailing of events in subsequent years with his words written and published." He means the world wars and so forth, uh, and also probably Fraderachad uh, and, and things like this. In any case, whatever I was is, I was is an intelligence possessed of power and knowledge absolutely beyond human experience, and therefore I was is a being worthy, as the current use of the word allows, of the title of a god. Yea, verily and amen, of a god. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, this is this is very much the point. I mean, he'll get into uh, the the advent of the magical child and all the circumstances surrounding that, and uh, it's pretty wild, like how on the nose everything is. And so, for again, this is. Um, I mean, if we try to bring this into our own. Uh, experience. I don't know if you've ever had uh, like experiences regarding 
feeling like you're communicating with spiritual entities and maybe synchronicities being a part of that, for instance. Um, this is a difficult territory because you can so easily be completely off the rails with it. But when it's really hitting, it's like very clear. It's just the problem is when you, you know, start making that kind of those synchronicities and things pop up because you're noticing, you know, at a force of habit or whatever. Um, but uh, in this case, this is like, uh, this is overboard. Like this is very on the nose and there's no, no denying it because there's, uh, it's only in hindsight that you can connect all the dots and say, well, of course. But uh, while, again, thinking of it from Crowley's perspective, as things are unfolding, it shall be his child and that strangely. And so <laughs> the way that the magical child came about was a very strange kind of story. Uh, and he produced the key that unlocked the Book of the Law in so many ways. Um, so this speaks really strongly to the idea that, okay, I was this voice Crowley says he heard in the corner of the room dictating the Book of the Law. And he even says he saw some shape there even though he didn't look... He imagined a shape there, sort of like there. It, it, it even though he never looked at it, it, it impressed upon him a sense of form. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's um, it speaks really strongly to uh, something going on here. That's uh, again, when you're looking at the way that synchronicities work, it's like okay, if you try to draw cause and effect uh, to explain things, it's like there would have to be everything would have to be connected and <laughs> there would be have to be some kind of a intelligence that was permeating all those things and it would kind of drive you crazy trying to think of how you could pull something like that off well the, for crowley the strongest argument in in favor of the the you know the sort of magical nature of the book is just how much he disliked it and discounted it and ignored it and then only after going back to it years later kind of by accident discovered the profundity and the power of it we don't as readers have access to that kind of emotional journey that he was on mm -hmm. um so and he, he tries to harp on it here to explain you know it's like like no no i wrote it hating it uh mm. and and one can easily say that that you know they don't believe him that the um that the the emotional evidence is not evidence because it's not there's no empirical record of it really only his claims and if you're already doubting the vera suspecting that the book might be a forgery any little story that he might tell around uh around the book you know could also be could also be um suspect uh for me but for me this the the way he treats his other forgeries. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, one might have been able to predict that, uh, you know, greater technological prowess would lead to more devastating warfare, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he was, he, Crowley was sort of a young man uh, kind of having the greatest time of his life. And the fact that he would choose this moment to predict 
a hundred years of plus of just devastating calamity, you know, is, uh, uh, is, is, a, is, is a bit weird. What I really wanted to point it though here is, is um, this, uh, he's, he's giving some permission to the psychological model people to have a psychological model, but, uh, but saying also that they need to have, that they need to have some explanation for how, how how Crowley's subconscious could have been so profound, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it basically, you know, if 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 I was is not a god and only my subconscious mind, then the profundity of the text makes my subconscious mind, you know, yeah, worthy even, of the title of god. And even if that uh, if the if that was the only discovery to take away from it, um, the power of the subconscious mind, that's pretty mind-blowing in and of itself. Yeah, the, the subconscious mind can, under controlled ceremonial circumstances, be elevated to the position of a, a, of a deity and do the kind of work that deity is supposed to do, like... Like, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a prophet channeling legit prophecy. And if, and if that's, if, if I actually am alone and there's no other spirit in here with me, how bizarre, is that more or less bizarre? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I, I, um, uh, again, along with my frustration about, uh, the, you know, the Rose dictated Liber Al people, that's been married recently in my mind with this idea that that Crowley was sitting on the fence between the psychological model and the and the the spirit model and you know sometimes uh he he makes allowances for uh for different people to have different perspectives about things and uh and you know there's a is it called hermeneutics I can't remember uh but this idea that that different people can speak from different perspectives at different times in their lives. But it seems to me like the whole point of this book is to emphasize the spirit model, mm-hmm. <laughs> the spirit model of magic. So, Yeah, I mean, there is that aspect of it, of course, as well, though, that he does actually allow for other perspectives on the, on the case. And he explores those perspectives. Um, and he tries to take everything into account. He tries to lay bare all the elements that were involved and be as open and honest about it as possible. Uh, and this is really important, because some people will just state uh, their pet idea, their pet th- hypothesis as biblical truth, and just stick by it and fail to be able to accept that they're maybe possibly mistaken, you know? Um, that's Well, that's right. I mean, the fact that he's not... Uh, I mean, he 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 doesn't stop very short of absolutely insisting on his position here. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, but, I did want to I did want to point out that this is also uh, this is 1920. That uh, I think there's a couple of other dates that there's been contributions to this text, this particular text, but it's in, initially dated as 1920. And it's nice to get a context for when he's writing the pieces that he's writing, for just the reason that you're talking about with this uh, reference to hermeneutics uh, and the idea of, like, somebody being essentially a different person at different stages of their life. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were talking about when um, uh, when the uh, introduction of the Book of the Law was written and we didn't know, uh, and I'm, we should have tried to look it up and we didn't because we're trying to deal with 
mm-hmm. what's on the page primarily rather than doing too much uh, um, sort of contextual decoration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, here it's 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 in the footnotes to the text. This is 1920, which means the introduction of the Book of the Law was likely sometime before 1920 because it predicts the forthcoming of this. So they must he must mm-hmm. have been working on both things kind of in tandem and published one before the other. So mm-hmm. while this was while this was written in uh, in 1920, I suppose we don't really still yet don't know when it was published, but and I, I find it interesting because of the fact that uh, for instance, there was that little portion I was alluding to earlier where he's. Uh, essentially saying things like, I, the beast, whose number is 660 and 6, say that this third chapter of the Book of the Law is nothing less than the authentic word of the aeon, the truth about nature at this time and on this planet. I wrote it, hating it and sneering at it, secretly glad that I could use it to revolt against this task most terrible that the gods have thrust remorselessly upon my shoulders, their cross of burning steel that I must carry even to my calvary the place of a skull, there to be eased of its weight, only that I be crucified thereon. And uh, he goes through <laughs> building himself up to be the Jesus of Crowleyanity, essentially. But it's like, uh, it's very in the style of that period. This He's is such a good writer. <laughs> it's just so much fun to read. It is. This crazy, this crazy language, the intensity <laughs> that he's able to muster in some of these passages is so, just incredible. This would have been the Chefalu period, and uh, it would have also been when he was doing a lot of workings involving um, things that we've alluded to before, which is uh, uh, he was, uh, from his diaries of that period, he was really emphasizing to himself uh expanding his ego essentially because he was exploring that idea of being a god being a voice for the gods being this great thing because he was specifically exploring how leah hirsig could be completely stepping on him and 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 crushing him and, and knocking him down and all this sort of thing. So I, I, I don't know how apocryphal it is, um, but I think of this as being sort of his ta- his tantric period, mm-hmm. um, uh, really trying to. I mean, it's it's Leah's going through the mystery of filth. So whether tantra is the right word or not, there's adjacent concepts because they're both trying to. Um, uh, they're both trying to sort of overcome their preferences, uh, both moral and physical, and uh, just um, immerse themselves in the disgusting, the reprehensible, the the frightening. Uh, There's famously, you know, the the nightmare murals at Kefalu and and, Mm -hmm. and various other, and and the the sadomasochism that they were practicing that you you allude to. uh, and and when what he writes here, uh, when you you quoted that passage that said um, uh, nothing so bestial that it is not divine or however mm-hmm. he however he phrases it, that's really the project. Uh, at not that's not the project of Kefalu, but that's Crowley's project while he's at yeah uh, while he's at Kefalu. And so it, it, it's a, it's a, when I say tantric period, I mean like the Agoris who will you know. Uh, 
lay back on corpses and let themselves be fucked by menstruating prostitutes or get drunk even though re- their religion for- forbids imbibing or mm-hmm. you know hang out in uh hang out in in crematoriums and stuff like that and eat out of skulls uh not because they're evil but because they're um because that stuff is but, abhorrent though. yeah but because but because they're trying to realize the um divinity inherent in in, in in all things, Malkuth is not just a, a little ball of shit hanging at the <laughs> hanging beneath the tree of life, but that uh, oh, one one initiator I I spoke with said to me, uh, "All things are pure to the pure," and just kind of an offhanded joke. But that's the goal is to understand <laughs> at least in this period, all things are pure to the pure. Yeah, incidentally, uh, I was at a Tibetan thing years ago, and uh, um, they passed. Uh, something around with liquid in it to drink, and uh, years later, somebody who, uh, somebody else who was at that same thing, uh, pointed out to me that that was a human skull, and I had no idea. <laughs> it's like it doesn't really have the full effect if you don't know beforehand. <laughs> right, you can't. <laughs> one, one, uh, one, one can't transgress by accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps they can. Well, I guess you can. It doesn't have the you, same psychological impact. Yeah, you don't realize it's somebody's property and you happen to <laughs> trespass. But uh. A friend of mine uh, was in France, and I think had never been in France. And within uh, within in, in sort of 10 minutes of, of getting in the cab from the airport, uh, saw the kind of French equivalent of the... the, the Buddha's three sites, you know, the sick man, the uh, the poor man, the the dying man. Uh, I can't remember all three of them, but but one of them was a guy with his pants literally around his ankles, standing on the median and peeing into the street. <laughs> and then you mean that uh, wasn't all three in one? <laughs> no, it's enough. Uh, and then um, uh, a few minutes later, went and sat down in the grass. And a policeman came over and said, you can't just sit in the grass, man. (laughs) What is France? Like, why is... I feel like that's like a Ziggy cartoon or something. (laughs) Anyway, uh, uh, I suppose one can can transgress without knowing it is the point of that ridiculous (laughs) story I didn't just tell. Let's finish off... Uh, this little bit, and then and then get into some of the uh, of of the gamatria. There's one more section where he he enumerates his evidence, giving you know give some thesis. He says the proof of his preternatural nature, meaning Aoas, uh, is uh, partly external, depending on events and persons without the sphere of its influence, partly internal, depending on the concealment of a certain truths, some previously known, some not known, but for the most part beyond the scope of my mind at the time of writing, b of an harmony of letters and numbers, subtle and delicate and exact, and c of the keys to all life's mysteries, both pertinent to the occult sciences and otherwise, and to all of the locks of thought. Locks of thought? Can you look in your edition, please, at the... It is locks of thought. Locks of thought. Yeah. Uh, There's no E at the end of lock. 
So. <laughs> well, thank goodness. <laughs> that would be confusing. Now, uh, in the book of the law, it's, it's laws of thought. Mm. Uh, in the book of the law, or in, no, soldier in the hunchback, it's laws of thought. But uh, here he says locks of thought. Well, he was saying the keys, so uh, oh, I see. pertinent to the context, yeah. The keys of the locks of, oh, how to unlock thought, yes. Uh, so we have enumerated here some of the ways in which, uh, as I said last month, uh, if you had a book which claimed to be of uh, non-human origin, what are some of the ways in which you could evidence that? Uh, and hear these things about uh, the author not knowing stuff, uh, um, things about other readers who uh, receive profound spiritual uh, insight from reading it. Uh, and then now, again, we have certain facts, for the most part, beyond the scope of my mind at the time of writing, a harmony of certain letters and numbers, subtle, delicate, and exact. So so codes and keys in the text itself. And then um, uh, just how, how profoundly insightful it is. The keys to all life's mysteries, both pertinent to the occult science and other otherwise, and to all the locks of thought. So, um, and again, C for me is not uh, evidence of its superhuman origin, but but sort of if if the book can do what it purports to do, who cares where it came from? Exactly. And I think that's mo most of the point. Like you don't have to have like you don't have to be uh, completely buying into one perspective on the matter. If it's useful, success is your proof, as the book itself says. Um, uh, are we ready to move on to section three here? Yeah, I'll just, uh, just about... before we do, I'll, sure. um, set it up with the way that he does, which is, uh, pointing out that the ciphers within the book, um, uh, many such cases of double entendre, paranomasia. Thank you for reading that word. I didn't want to read that <laughs> word. In one language or another, sometimes two at once. Numerical literal puzzles, and even, on one occasion, an illuminating connection of letters in various lines by a slashing scratch will be found in the Kabbalistic section of the commentary. And he's going to enumerate some of, at least an example for each of these ideas. The three examples are going to be examples of um, double entendre, paranomasia, and... Uh, numerical puzzles and this is what i was hoping to find when we uh, open when we decided to open this book and i have here a footnote uh um will be found in the cabalistic section of the commentary in preparation and then someone named ts appends mostly now lost uh, so this material is not extant i would assume ts was typescript like maybe uh, oh. in the typescript from for the the notes of this that uh, that's where that comes from, unless that perhaps unless there was an editor for that version aside from Skinner who actually read the text. Well, this is just I I, I read both the Skinner and the uh, the Hymenaeus Beta, but this is just uh, something I pulled off the internet gotcha. to 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 mark up. Interesting, yeah. Um, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Which is why I'll sometimes ask you to verify spelling mistakes. Not that either Skinner or Beta would leave in spelling mistakes, but that this uh, stupid scanned version might have them. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I would like to uh, detail the, uh, like, okay, 
I'm sure most people know what double entendre is. It's uh, something with a couple of different layers of meaning to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, paronomasia is a less frequently used word, um, which is from the Greek uh, para being beside onomasia, meaning uh, naming. So it's like um, basically, so- it's like a pun, essentially. It's a play on. Uh, a word that uh, sounds you can take it two ways so it means double entendre essentially (laughs) (laughs) so Uh, we'll have to see how he delineates the difference here well he says in one language or another so it may be that it may be that that a word uh that a word in english will be a homonym for a word in another language and uh and uh and and that that by reading it, for example, thinking of later, he says, uh, no and lo sound alike. Lo being a, the Hebrew word that means not. And so when you see no uh, in a couple of places, uh, it actually means you, you, can, you can imagine not only as being the word no, but also as, as having the sense of lo. Which is uh, um, so which? If you have which, no is, K-N-O-W which is no K N O W and no N O. But then also lo lamad aleph, which would be not N O T. So pointing at like the the veils of of mm-hmm. of, of not. So he says it's he's going to say it's like a it like points back at Nuit's technical name. Uh, yeah, she... ye, even ye know not this meaning all. Yeah. Not this meaning all. And all seems like al, A-L, and not kind of implies L-A, the yeah. opposite. Yeah, so, yeah, not is, uh, yeah, so so not being, L-A being, uh, being, being the Hebrew word lo, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, now he's going to start with this really fascinating uh, situation with his magical child, Froderick Hodd, who uh, Charles Stanfield Jones, he uh, uh, was writing to him frequently. Charles, I guess, Stan uh, Achad, I'll just call him that because everybody, <laughs> if I try to reduce it to one name, that's probably the easiest thing. Well, that's problematic because it, you should, we need to know that Parseval oh, yeah. <laughs> is also Achad. Welcome to Kabbalah. <laughs> and, uh, well, welcome to the AA. Um, and uh, And that. O-I-V-V-I-O is also Achad. Which is fascinating because that's uh, the initials of his name, which is like Omnia in Unibus, or, and then uh, Unus in Omnibus. So it's like the reverse of uh, the this, this same kind of thing, uh, which is uh, kind of reflective of that same key that he eventually discovers, the uh, Lo and Al, mm. which is <laughs> fascinating. Cool. Sorry to derail you there. No, no, I derailed you. You were saying who Frater Achad was. Oh, yeah, that's right. Would you fucking calm your tits over there? <laughs> just, it's just trains crashing into other trains all the way down. <laughs> well, we knew it would be force and fire. So, um, Achad was basically a member of the AA, and um, I forget at what point he became a member of the OTO, but he did. And uh, he helped to set up the Agape Lodge that was originally in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, eventually there would be that would close and there would be another Agape Lodge opened in California. But uh, at this time, Crowley was in touch with Ahad 
regularly and was uh, even annotating his diaries uh, up until a certain point. Um, and then at some point, Crowley was on a trip across America and fell in with this uh, woman on a train and had an affair with her. And uh, he saw that as the point, like in hindsight, that the magical child was conceived. Uh, now, Ahad was already an adult at this point, but the point being that uh, simultaneous to that period, he was doing magical sex magic with this uh, this woman that he was having an affair with, Hilarion, she took the name as. And um, at that same time, Ahad was having his uh, crossing of the abyss experience. He was becoming a master of the temple. And Crowley saw this as being um, an example of how the AA system was um, showing itself to be extremely effective because he had managed to reach that point in such a short period of time. Uh, I will point out to listeners that we, uh, on purpose... Uh, don't do a lot of secondary reading for this. So any minor factual uh, errors in Darren's recounting of that history, <laughs> you know, he w- it, we are not responsible for that material coming into our discussion today. <laughs> However, broad strokes, uh, broad strokes, that's the shape of it, is this woman Hilarion uh, um, is the, the, the magical mother and, uh, and, and uh, Tomegatherion, the magical father of, um, uh, of the, the birthing of the AA initiate, Frater Achad, uh, at some point in his, de- his development. Mm-hmm. And you think that's uh, uh, not the... F- not, I, I always imagined it was the first time uh, that, uh, that Achad took his initi- initiation shortly after the sex magic work, but you think it, it has to do uh, with Achad's crossing of the abyss, his birth as a, as a master of the temple. It may have been just as a babe of the abyss, which is mm. the stage prior to that. But I, I just remember that he was undergoing this ceremony, and uh, he sent uh, Crowley a message related to, like, just letting him know about what was happening. And uh, Crowley was able to trace it back to he would have sent it at about that time. So Crowley already knew Achad at the time that he was being born as his magical son. Yes. It refers to a, a stage of his initiation. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and I think you could probably line up the dates, I would imagine, because uh, Achad's diaries were e- published in the Equinox um, 3-1, uh, the Blue Equinox, and um, in the Master of a Temple. And uh, you could probably line up the dates there with Crowley's uh, recounting of, of these things and the confessions, I would think. His probationer diary is there, as well as um, something from a more advanced stage of the work. There's two tracts of diary, but I don't think... Oh, I don't mean that you would be able to read that particular portion, I suppose, but I just mean that yeah. uh, just verifying that that stuff would have oh, happened prior before to that to the, point in time. Sure. Yeah. So here's a, um, a a brief section from chapter three of the book of the law. It says, "The fool readeth this book, and he understandeth it not." This has a secret reverse meaning, uh, commentates Crowley. The fool, uh, uh, open quotes, Parseval, frater, uh, O I V V I O, understandeth it, 
being a magister template of the grade attributed to understanding, not, i.e., to be not. And uh, uh, and so, achad, the reason achad is the fool, or in here it says Parseval is the fool, is that uh, achad means uh, unity, and so the fool is um, attributed, the, the fool of the tarot is, is attributed to the letter Aleph of... Um, uh, the the Hebrew alphabet, and that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it has the number one. So so the the fool and achad unity number one, and the tarot card the fool they have identity that way. And the tarot and then, card of the fool is card number zero. Card number zero. Hence not. Uh, um, oh, uh, very good. Um, but the the book itself, uh, uh, Liber Alvaligus is Achad's um, uh, initiated understanding is that the, that that not is somehow a definition of uh, of this book, and that doesn't mean that the book doesn't exist, <laughs> uh, but that um, it's uh, it, it 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 gazes up at the veils of not beyond creation. Yeah, this is a really fascinating subject, and there's a, some of this comes up in the vision of the voice as well. And I think the vision and the voice uh, tends to be overlooked a lot, uh, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of uh, stuff to mine out of that to help almost as a commentary in and of itself upon the Book of the Law or an expansion upon the uh, the universe, <laughs> <laughs> the Thelemic universe, so to speak. But uh, this idea of not is uh, really key, pun intended, or sorry, Paranomasia intended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then here, uh, Crowley says that um, the name Parseval adds to 418. Uh, I didn't try to verify that for some reason, but in the Grail uh, legend, uh, Parseval is the son of someone named Camuret, and apparently Camuret adds to 666. So this is more evidence that the Tomegatherion 666 is the uh, is the appropriate magical father of the the man Charles Stanfield Jones, whose uh, name Parseval, you know. Uh, and Incidentally, I, just to catch this Parseval thing uh, in the story, I just looked up Wikipedia. I want to buy the book actually because mm -hmm. there's this medieval book, Parseval, which is like a German book and. Uh, uh, I think it's based on uh, one of the Knights of King Arthur, mm. um, but uh, it's this little portion that I did pluck out of it related to this is uh, where he, um, his mother's raising him uh, with the intention of avoiding having him get getting involved in violence or you know anything like that and keeping him safe. But then he ends up catching wind of King Arthur's court and he wants to go run off and join them, but uh, and he won't take no for an answer so his mother dresses him up in all kinds of motley colors and makes him look like a complete fool and sends him oh, off so the fool yeah parseval another reason this that, is where this is also yeah touching on which is a worthwhile note but please continue um and then uh the the magical mother is the uh, uh, Scarlet Woman Hilarion, uh, which Crowley says adds to 1001, uh, which is um, all, also important because that'll be, uh, that'll have an Aleph 
feeling. Um, if you if you bold a Hebrew letter, that puts it into the thousands. So one thousand and one is Aleph Aleph. Um, incidentally, I could not make Hilarion add to one thousand and one. Oh, I can't I was, help it. But... I was mathing it together, and there was yeah. no hope. I, I I think I tried to do this with Partsable as well, and was yeah kind of confused how this was working. But uh, <laughs> um, I can't help it. A thousand and one, uh, big LF and a little LF uh, reminds me of the line from the Book of the Law that's uh, sacrifice cattle little and big before a child. After a child. Or after a child. Yeah. After a child. And uh, Crowley takes that to mean, uh, to be the prediction that, uh, um, oh, what's her name? Not Lola Zaza. The other one. Lilith? Who's the baby who dies? Oh, uh, he had a few babies that died. Didn't the they? first one. Um, yeah, I guess it wasn't it Lola Zaza. Poop. Was it Lola Zaza? Maybe it was Poopy. Lilith. I, I I have a hard time keeping track of. Uh, yeah, but Crowley. T- but um, so so. Uh, very... I think she. Had, it was the one with the ridiculous number of names. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, somebody had made the quip that she had died of uh, uh, over paranomasia. <laughs> <laughs> some name, clever name that had too many names yeah <laughs> she died of over namedness <laughs> uh, uh hypernomia yeah yeah something like that uh that's so sad <laughs> jesus um but yeah so crowley takes the sacrifice cattle legal and big after a child but not now something something and so he takes that to be to be the prediction that uh um, that uh, their his his firstborn his firstborn daughter is 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 going to die before she reaches uh, the her first birthday and and indeed that does mm-hmm. that does happen. So some of like as we've already sort of said, some of these numbers are are confusing how they come about. But what's in what's important is that uh, there are things about a Achad being Crowley's magical son that are predicted in the book, and just saying the fool readeth this book and understand it not is good enough because we've already proved that the fool is Frater Achad by uh, the relationship of the Aleph and the tarot card the fool, and then what Frater Achad discovers. Uh, is that the key to the book is this number 93. Uh, I don't think Crowley had known that yet. Um, and that um, the the name of the book is not Lieber El, not Lieber Lamad, but Lieber Al, or El, the name of God. Um, so that's 31. And then uh, the, word, the Hebrew word not, uh, Lamad Aleph, Lo, that's the second 31. And then the third 31 is, is, is um, the shin and the tav together. Yeah, that wasn't the uh, recording messing up. That was, <laughs> <laughs> it was me trying to do a, a, a couple of sibilant consonants without putting a vowel in between. Uh, without making it sound like shit. <laughs> bingo, boingo. Uh, and this w- this was difficult for me to understand because the letter Shin is three hundred and the letter uh, Tef is uh, is eleven, 
So how how did how they add to thirty one was a mystery to me. But of well, course, Teth is uh, nine. You're thinking the tarot card eleven. Uh, right? Sorry, yes, yeah, Teth is nine. Uh, so it was a mystery to me how they added to uh, thirty one. But as I've 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 slipped, I've put the punchline first. <laughs> uh, if you just look at the tarot cards, uh, of course, lust is the eleventh key of the tarot, and uh, the aeon is the thirtieth. 20th. 20th. The Aeon is the 20th. Uh, so 11 and uh, and 20 are, are, are 31. It. I do not understand where this ST comes from, though. I don't remember it being an important consonant pairing in the Book of the Law. Um, or it's, but it's the relationship of the the beast to the scarlet woman that, uh, or the beast and the scarlet woman to the the whole uh, universe, the whole aeon that you get by putting those two tarot cards together. Um, that that is the um, uh, th- that talks about the relationship of of, of Crowley to Rahorquit and the, the, the coming of the new Thelemic Aeon. Uh, but do you have any insight? Why ST? Why is this consonant? Is there, is there, a, is that important consonant cluster in the book of the law? ST? I don't recognize it from off the yeah, top of my head. Yeah, it's a difficult one because I feel like when he's, uh, when he is going through some of these, uh, gematric ideas here, uh, he's, it's almost like he's using shorthand because he's also dealt with them in other places. Uh, so I, uh, that was one of the things I was suggesting as a future subject as well was to look and specifically gather the places where Crowley talks about the magical word Lashtal, mm. which is exactly what we're talking about here. The low, the L-A, followed by sht, the uh, Sheen Tav, or properly Sigma Theta. And uh, he's using a Sigma that's not commonly used these days it's like uh it looks like a capital c usually sigma looks like a kind of crazy e with a yeah v like an indentation yeah. but uh, or as a less as a lowercase letter it'd be just like an s uh, mm-hmm. but in a slightly strange shape in depending on the position but or but when the two like of them, smack. when the two of them embrace, they're uh, supposed to be um, uh, the sun the and the sun, moon. Yeah, the sun eclipsed by a crescent moon, which can't happen, or it also looks like a foreshortened phallus. Yeah, so it's like the male and female uh, conjoined. If you look at the uh, the famous cipher on page, uh, sorry, on verse seventy six of chapter two, I guess it is. Um, the last, uh, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven letters, there's a P and then an ST, which is what we're talking about, right? ST mm-hmm. and then O-V-A-L. So it's like Parseval mm. spelt instead of Parseval, Parseval. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. So it's like uh, it's like a cod's a, a, a sort of a weird, a difficult consonant cluster spelling of a cod's. What? Okay. It, it did occur to me as well. There's a place in the chap in the third chapter where he uh, in the commentaries he's talking about the stele will be um, seven eighteen, and he's trying to figure out how that can work out. How and then eventually he figures okay stele. Uh, can enumerate to 718 if you take the S and the T as a double letter. Oh. And I think that's probably connected to this. That's probably, uh, that could be specifically where it comes from, but I feel like we have to confer the two 
points. Also, in in Thelema, there are uh, mysteries of ST gods, Mm -hmm. like um, Satan and Set, and uh, there's there's a whole bunch of sort of like adversary deities that are listed in some places. Uh, And and the important point is that the, the, you know, Satan, Set, so, you know, the, mm-hmm. these sorts of uh, sharp uh, S's and T's together. So, um, yeah, and there's a lot of this, the this adversarial nature of of what's happening with the new Aeon against uh, against the old. Yeah, there's a passage coming up that's uh, very delving into, like, the idea of the sibilant and the labial and all this sort of mm-hmm. thing, uh, the different types of uh, voicings of the letters. And I feel like there was a... I mean, I could be wrong. I could be mistaken about this, but I feel like there was a particular stage of his life that he was particularly interested in that subject. And there, there is work done on this in the modern period, and I forget what it's called. I, I used to think of it as being uh, onomatopoeia, where you know, like the word "bark" sounds like what it describes, mm-hmm. but it's not called onomatopoeia. It's called something else. But like. My example was always lunatic. Couldn't possibly mean anything else because the word sounds so crazy. <laughs> um, but the way you study this is that you take people who don't speak Japanese and you show them long lists of Japanese words with possible definitions. And, um, and, and often, if you give them two choices, they're able to pick the right meaning because mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, one word sounds bouncier than the other word just mm-hmm. in the way the the way you're forced to pronounce it and so not every word is like this which is where Crowley was getting tripped up because he was trying to find universal meanings for consonant sounds um, uh, but there there do seem to be meanings for consonant sounds that they that they invoke a kind of uh, uh, a kind of sense that gives you a that can give you clues to meanings uh um and there are types there's a word for these types of words that that's like lunatic that sort of sound mm. like what they mean uh and crowley's famous example is 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 um he thinks the consonant sound m is comforting like the sound of a mother uh um like uh in hebrew amma or in english mom or uh, in in various languages, that he always wants to see an M in those words for mom, and uh, and and uh, but then he get, he'll you'll see in and I think it's from this period. I think it's from the Kefalu period. You see him. He talks about like you know sitting on a bus or something and just going, and see seeing what that F sound makes him feel. And then trying to find other words that feel like that in the languages that he knows, and then noting contrary meanings and saying like, "Oh, this screws up my thesis because there's words that f, that, words that start with f that don't make me feel like that." Mm-hmm. But of course, not every word is in this class of, you yeah, know, like like onomatopoeia. Not not all words sound like the things they describe, <laughs> uh, um, uh, but some do, and it does say something about the character of the letter. Kind of harkens back to uh, the uh, medieval and uh, Renaissance period sort of ontology that tried to find the um, the primal language where the words are somehow intrinsically tied to the things that they are describing. Oh, that's a horrible story. <laughs> that's grotesque. Do you know that you you know this? There's a 
I think it's a, a, a Roman emperor, an early one, maybe uh, 300, 400 AD, um, uh, kidnaps a bunch of children and tries to raise them without human contact, except with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so the forcing them to develop a language, a language between themselves in, mm. in, in the hopes of, of getting towards this natural language. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and people, uh, watch the jungle book movie and get really into the idea of feral children, but every case of, of, uh, of, you know, or Tarzan or something like that. But when you actually see feral chil- histories of feral children, it's always these, uh, um, stories of, of horrific abuse. And, yeah. <laughs> and this is the story, the, 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 the natural language research that's done in the, at, at least some of these stories are, are, are really bad, really bad, sad <laughs> stories. Uh, since we're talking about, um, about it, we might as well read it. The import of teeth. All the, all the Hebrew letters uh, have sort of um, homonyms in the Hebrew language, like the letter mem sort of sounds like the word mayim, which is the Hebrew word for water. And so mem like means water. Um, and the letter aleph sort of sounds like whatever the Hebrew word for ox is. And, uh, and it, it's actually in an older language that I can't remember the name of right now where these uh, connections connections exist more materially. I think it's like Phoenician is probably where it originated from. But the uh, but the le- but the letter Shin sort of has homonymic uh, qualities with the the Hebrew word for teeth. So we say that Shin means teeth, and so he says uh, teeth are displayed when our secret self, our subconscious ego, whose magical images our individuality expressed in mental and bodily form, our holy guardian angel comes forth and declares our true will to our fellows, whether to snarl or to sneer, to smile or to laugh. Teeth serve us to pronounce dental letters, which in their deepest nature express decision, fortitude, endurance, just as guttural suggests the breath of life itself, free-flowing, and labials the duplex vibrations of action and recantation. Pronounce a t, a d, or a n, and you will find them all continuously forcible exhalations, whose difference is determined solely by the position of the tongue, the teeth being bared as when a wild beast turns to bay. Yeah, I've heard it put uh, that uh, the teeth are kind of like, uh, you know, the only part of your skeleton you can see, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, a preview. <laughs> <laughs> this might be... Yeah, the the import of your smile is that it might be what you look like when you die. <laughs> as far as the proofs go, um, the one paragraph within this particular chapter, like the the proofs that you're talking about, or the quizzing of uh, Rose Kelly, uh, Urarda, or Warda, however you pronounce that uh, Arabic word that. Uh, she took his name there the quizzing of her comes in an earlier chapter in the equinox of the gods and so we're looking at uh, chapter seven which is um doesn't have that section per se which does constitute a really interesting way of quizzing the spirits and testing to see you know how how actually 
truthful you have things or how, how trying to verify the spirits and that there's actually some kind of information that you don't already have that's being yeah attained. this this is one of the things when you're doing like magical evocation work um when you when you think you're facing a spirit and you're able to have a little bit of a conver conversation however that works whether it's um you know you're asking questions and imagining answers or whether um you're asking questions of a of a person who's doing some channeling as in this case or you know how whether you're doing some some sort of uh, scrying work the the idea is that you need to verify that you've actually contacted the entity you intended to contact and so there's be, before you start doing uh, negotiating for whatever it is you want to achieve um you you ask it some some control questions and see if you can get the correct answers and so the, the first thing i always do is use the thelemic greeting i just say do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law and expect that the spirit will respond in kind and often they do, but there are times when they they don't. And like all this, like whatever spirit you contact, they should know that. So if you don't get the right response, it's evidence that you're dealing with some sort of like static, or uh, like a, a cacodemon, or or something that uh, that isn't um, a refined enough spiritual entity to deserve your attention uh, in terms of in terms of working with it. But there are more detailed questions you can ask about colors and numbers and offices um, uh, and names. Naming is a good one because they'll tell you something crazy and then you have to try to work out how to spell it and make sure the number is appropriate to the sphere that you're dealing with. So I had forgotten that I wanted to talk about this. Um, and I, th I think uh, even if, if you have it in front of you, even if you could just read through some of those questions that... Uh, that Crowley asks Rose because it, it it's a template it, it's an awesome template for the the way in which one should inter interrogate a spirit to make sure they're dealing with the correct entity. Absolutely. So, um, uh, looking at uh, just the list, he's got an enumerated list of twelve points. Um, so, first of all, uh, I asked her to describe his moral qualities. Speaking of Rahur Kuit. Uh, who she claimed was um, trying to come through. I asked her about. I asked her to describe his moral qualities. Her answer was force and fire. And he, of course, he's not feeding her any information. His whole point here is that she had no background with magic, no ma background with uh, uh, the way he describes her later on when he's describing all the details surrounding the circumstance and all the people involved or who could have been involved in that sort of thing. He's breaking her down as being um, not like the least likely person, kind of a, you know, uh, not educated, not not uh, interested in magic or uh, mysticism or anything like that. And, uh, and I mean, when they got together, it was a complete whirlwind thing. So it wasn't like they had spent years together sharing ideas or anything like that. You know, and he wasn't even into, he wasn't really into he was ignoring magic at the time i had done a fair num fair amount of path working uh which is sort of like you know identifying a, a path on the tree of life and 
using some mantras or some color cues or something or some number some numerical cues simple things to try to get into it um, and then recording whatever images come up and I had done a, a fair amount of path working before I really started um, studying Kabbalistic correspondences and learning what those visions should look like uh, and I, I I think this is a neat way to organize yourself because once you're an experienced magician who really has some sense of what the what the answers to the questions you're asking should be which you need in order to verify the spirit. Like if you ask it a mm -hmm. question about a number and then the number that comes back is meaningless to you, you can't verify that you're speaking to the right ent entity until later on when you are journaling and you can look the stuff up. But but when you're first starting out doing simple little things like path working and stuff uh, can convince you of the power of scrying work because then you can go and verify things and realize that the visions you're getting cued off by little colors and stuff um, are actually quite, uh, you know, they you can see whether what you're getting is accurate or not. Um, uh, and so here Crowley is, is, is in a sense, he's lucky because like he's, you're saying, Rose is, um, is a, an uninitiated person and until this exact moment, an uninterested person, like yeah. very, uh, and, and all of a sudden she's saying all this, uh, stuff, which seems quite crazy telling Crowley that, you know, they are waiting for him and stuff like this. It's, she's, she seems to be having some sort of, uh, a bizarre psychotic episode, but. And he's frankly annoyed by it. Yeah. But she's insisting that she's got some, uh, that, that, that she's, um, being spiritually inspired, that she's hearing voices, uh, that want his attention. And so when he, when he asks her this list of questions that I'm, 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 I'm asking you to read, um, the fact that she can answer them correctly is really, really weird and helps to prove to him that there's, there's spirit contact. Now, when you're doing, if you're, a, if, if you're doing work either by yourself or with a magical partner, who's also an experienced magician, it becomes more difficult because you know what answers you're supposed to be getting. So the possibility for self-deception is present. Um, and so, you know, you just have to kind of navigate that. In this case, the, uh, um, this is a, a real feat of clairvoyance, if nothing else, for her to be able to to guess the right answers. Uh, he'll he'll give some statistic, which I have no way of evaluating whether or not he's correct about <laughs> the statistics. But it's kind of amazing. Anyway, it does get pretty uh, pretty crazy if this is all how it actually fell out. Um, so number two, I asked her to describe the conditions caused by him, and uh, she responded that it was a deep blue light. Uh, this light is quite unmistakable and unique, but of course her words, though a fair description of it, might equally apply to some other. So uh, he's acknowledging the fact that this is too vague of a, a point. Um, and it's interesting because later on, different points when he um, invokes Iwas or, or has um, similar kinds of inter interactions himself with Iwas, uh, he, he also describes that blue light as well but like i say he's not just sort of taking this as anything like a huge hit or anything like that he's acknowledging that it could be any number of uh things could apply to this so the next one is i asked her to pick out his name from a list of 10 dashed off at haphazard 
And uh, so she chose the name Horus, which is the hawk-headed god. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he judges that at one out of ten, because I guess he had ten names. Yeah, sure. Next up, we have this refers... Oh, I guess he's refer, I He gives all the answers first, and I've been giving the questions first, because it's a little without context when you're just <laughs> reading it out loud. But uh, her answer was, recognize his figure when shown. Okay, I guess that's not really an answer. That's just what she did. <laughs> <laughs> so she recognizes his figure when shown. This refers to the striking scene in the Bulak Museum, which will be dealt with in detail. So the idea is that um, uh, she's a, she's now answered all these questions, which we're continuing to to try to read here uh, correctly. She's and and the consistent answers to the questions have all pointed at uh, some form of Horus. And uh, then later on, uh, he'll say, "Okay, well, you know, do you think you could recognize the person you're talking to if if you if you saw him?" And she sort of says, "Yes." So they go to the museum, and he says, "Well, somewhere in here, there's there's going to be an icon of the god Horus." And she and he he sort of chuckles as uh, as she walks him past many many images of Horus without seeming to notice them, and then settles on. The stele of revealing, which has a idiosyncratic image of Horus, Heruraha, which is not sort of the standard image, but then uh, also the stele is uh, is numbered six six six, which he also takes to be significant. So uh, she, even though she doesn't recognize many many images of Horus, the image she settles on is one image of Horus. And, and it's not just a image. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's an image uh, with a, a significant biblical number that Crowley identifies yeah, with. An image with an exclamation point. So uh, um, so that that's a, another one of the tests he administers to her. So now she, uh, for number five, she knew my past relations with the god. Um, this means, I think, that she knew I had taken his place in temple. Uh, that is to say, in the Golden Dawn ceremony, there's a position for the god Horus. Um, and that I n- had never once invoked him. And so uh, uh, I don't know if she, if this is covered here, but at some point throughout the Equinox of the Gods, he uh, points out that uh, Horus or Rahu or Kweed is basically s- saying that Crowley has um, uh, neglected him. And uh, this comes from uh, what Crowley takes to be the fact that because of Mathers being overly into the Mars Gevora kind of energy uh, and focused on invoking that, Crowley naturally kind of did the opposite, I guess, mm-hmm. and shied away from it and, and uh, um, neglected it. So um, this is kind of the backdrop for that. Then we have, um, yeah, so number six. She knew his enemy. Uh, I asked, who is his enemy? And her reply was, forces of the waters, of the Nile. And uh, he points out that she knew no Egyptology or anything else. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little bit rough on her in this text. (laughs) So... um. And um, so then they move on to number seven, uh, where she knew his lineal figure and its color. This is one of the things that comes up in the Golden Dawn teachings as well, that each of the Sephiroth is corresponded to um, a lineal figure and to a color and that sort of thing. And as we've touched on, this is Geburah. 
So, okay. um, I mean, that seems to be really the, the nature of the force that's coming through here. So it would be um, uh, because the Sephira are the 10 emanations of God. They're numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Uh, Galura would be uh, the fifth Sephiroth. And so his, liminal, his lineal figure would be a, a shape with five sides. And so, you know, one is a dot, two is a circle, three is a triangle. And so, so she would have been, you know, she, she would have been uh, shown all these sort of just basic geometric shapes and told to, you know, point at one. And she, she even guessed that correct, which is kind of nuts. Yeah. So he uh, lists that as one in 12 and one in seven being uh, the chances for the lineal figure, I'm assuming 1 in 12, and then for the uh, color, 1 in 7. Uh, and I'm assuming that's probably, at a guess, that would be the planetary colors that he would have been showing her uh, if it's 1 in 7. And he gives that as an overall chance of 1 in 84. Then for number 8, we have knew his place in the temple, which God knows how she would have, you know known where in the Golden Dawn Temple he would have, uh, Horus would have been placed. Um, and although he gives it as a one in four chance at least, at the least. So, of course, he must have given her... Yeah, he would have said, uh, you know, north, south, east, west, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, or possibly said center or, you know, w w however he described it to her. He's, he's, uh, he's not just asking her... Uh, he, he, yeah, where he's, would she be? In, in order to come up with these statistics, the he's he's coming up with he's giving her a multiple choice test, probably in most cases. Then knew his weapon, and that's from a list of six. So he's at least explicit with that, um, and that's one in six chance for those of you keeping track. <laughs> and then for number ten. This is uh, going on with this drilling, and this is something Crowley, uh, you know, got shit from spirits later on in his life for because he just wouldn't get let up with the the drilling. So, um, it's like, can we move on to an actual conversation here? No, no, you gotta continue to prove that this is not bullshit. <laughs> Number ten knew his planetary nature from a list of seven planets, so that's one in seven, and that again would be Mars. Then number 11, knew his number from a list of 10 units. So again, Sephirotic, assumedly. Mm -hmm. So from the Sephiroth. Um, and that's a 1 in 10 chance, of course. Picked him out of A, 5, B, 3, indifferent, i.e. arbitrary symbols. Now that sounds confusing saying that aloud if you're reading it on the page. It's simple yeah. enough, but I uh, don't know how that comes across. But basically, he, she picked him out of five indifferent, that is to say, arbitrary symbols, and then three indifferent, that is to say, arbitrary symbols. So what happens is that Crowley just, for example, uh, might find some stuff lying around the house. You know, uh, a peanut, a house key, a rubber band... Uh, a coffee mug, you know, cigarette. Line, uh, yeah, lined them all up on the desk, imagined that one of them had something to do with Horace, 
and she was able to say like like guess which object he was thinking of so whereas the other things are like factual information i factual i'm saying loosely but if you're a golden dawn practitioner you would things that you would know uh this is like really just a, a feat of mentalism that she's able to accomplish mm-hmm. um and yeah that's that's the uh, the list as we have it in that particular position there so if you're quizzing a spirit what are some things uh that you can apply you can uh, ask for the spirit's name the spelling of the spirit's name which you can reduce to a number to see if it's appropriate to the um sephiroth that you're calling up you can ask for the spirit's lineal figure you can ask for the spirit's color you can ask for its moral qualities you can ask for what does he say the effect of its evocation which is the sort of the blue light thing yeah i guess the the uh the what is it how do you describe it i asked her to describe the conditions caused by him right and so there's there's a lot of options for uh and you know it crowley says he would exhaust a spirit by asking too many of these confirmation questions because as i say once you get to know what the answer should be self-deception is really possible so I, i guess crowley dealt with this by just over-interrogating to really make sure. Although, if you were able to answer all your own questions, I don't know how just asking more <laughs> more <laughs> questions helps. But uh, these are these are concise questions with specific answers that you can ask quickly off the off the hop in any invocatory ritual and get answers to make sure you're dealing with the person you think you're dealing with. Yeah, and I I mean uh, on that point uh, asking more and more questions uh, the places where we specifically seem to have that from Crowley is when he's working with somebody else as a medium. Uh, I I'm not sure if I can think of a spot where he's talking about doing that just by himself hmm. or anything like that uh and except when he's advising people on their own astral journeys um but when he's like the places where we actually have him doing this um like when he's dealing with alamantra the wizard or um uh what have you it's uh, generally what's happening is he's working with um a scarlet woman i believe who's uh, acting as the conduit for this uh this entity and so that makes it a little easier to work in that way, where it's not just a matter of him already knowing all the answers to the questions that he's asking, but it's somebody else as that medium to test. Yeah, but again, if you're working with um, uh, another trained magician, they they if they have the, some of the similar background that you do, as most Thelemites do, they, um, uh, they should know a lot of these answers themselves yeah. anyway. So Yeah, I mean, um, he was, in his case, again, it's like he was working with... Uh, Specifically, people that he just met. In, right. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, who wouldn't have had uh, years of training in this kind of thing or anything like that. Any interested sexual partner could potentially become uh, 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 a scarlet, mm-hmm. a scarlet woman, depending on if they had the the right comportment and were willing to jump through some of the hoops. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there was a, the um, as a a case against those cases uh, to set against that. We have. Um, uh, I want to say Elaine Simpson um, is that who he was, uh, who was also in the Golden Dawn with him, and who uh, he had a liaison with in China uh, after Rose had been sent home. Mm. And uh, I think during that liaison, they were um, invoking. He was excitedly telling her about I was pretty much, and then invoked invoked I was, and there was that blue light. 
that he uh, had spoken about as being uh, part of the conditions uh, surrounding him. But uh, she, um, in that case, that would have been a case where she would have been well informed about all these things as well. But um, she was uh, warning him against I was and, and thinking that it was a, a demon or something like that. Now, that would be an interesting subject to look at in and of itself. There's a chapter in the Confessions dealing with that, and it'd be, it'd be fun to uh, dip into that, because that's a really uh, interesting little little uh, portion of this, this adventure. Now, for the um, sake of clarity, you were saying that uh, he was looking for verifications to do with um, the Sephira of uh, Gavura. Um, now, which spirit is he, uh, does he think he's interrogating if he's looking for an- all Gavoric answers? Is it the Iwas spirit, or is it uh, some form of Horus that he's uh, hoping to verify? What, uh, um, it seems what's the number five? In this case, he's uh, specifically, because they were talking about um, Rahur Kuwait mm-hmm. being the one with the, uh, like, the the spirit coming through. Uh, so if I was, was involved with that, it would have only been as a mediator to it, uh, as he was for the book of the law. But, um, yeah, that does beg the question. I mean, this is why the uh, blue light, he doesn't really amount to anything. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, really give it too much weight because it's like, it could, you know, mean any number of things in this case. Right. If it had been red light, then that would have corroborated everything else with uh, the Gaburic kind of energy. Yeah, but she is able to pick out the colors, so the conditions uh, caused still... by his evocation are are, are are something else. Yeah. And Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, thank you for going through that with me. So uh, we're, we're, we're coming up on our two hours here. Um, we've given some, some of, of the ways, uh, in which, um, uh, the text is, it, it can be analyzed by Kabbalistic, uh, means some of the, the, the codes that Crowley himself claims to not have been aware of inserting. We've talked about the prediction of the, you know, the coming of Fradrachad, the, the great magical son of Alistair Crowley. And we've talked a, a, a little bit in a, in a way that makes me happy about, uh, the, um, what, what the reign of the God of War looks like in the 20th century, uh, uh, you know, verifying many of the things that people are most uh, afraid of um, in, in Liberal. Uh, you know, the problem is he's not arguing, he's telling you. <laughs> uh, the chapter seven of this book had, I think, you know, seven subsections, and we basically addressed three of them. We but, did anticipate a few of them, but uh, I mean, oh, some of them are kind of nuts and boltsy as well, so it's not really that, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, I wonder, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to finish everything we start. You know? It's true. It's okay. Uh, anything you want to say by way of uh, way of closing after we've we've been through this material? Yeah, I mean, does this seem like we've got verified proof? of discarnate intelligence how do we feel about that 
I don't think it's unique proof. I think the 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 story of how the Enochian tablets are received uh, is very very weird. <laughs> um, uh, but I suppose at the time um, that this is that this is written, there wasn't so much introductory material on Enochian magic as there is now, and that that story hadn't been summarized by you know, every scam artist trying to make a buck, <laughs> um, for, for, you know, since the 1970s or, or whenever. So, um, if, if you go with Crowley on this journey, um, and, and start to start to look at some of these details, do they become spooky? I don't know if it ever becomes particularly spooky to me, but maybe that's because I'm a Thelemite who just, believes in the story of the reception and like it never says you know the first world war will break out in 1914 yeah. <laughs> it just says danger you know uh i am the god of war and vengeance and i shall deal hardly with them you know so things like get the stellia of revealing itself and lock it behind glass and you know it will be as a proof uh, crowley fails to do this he never does that he never he never buys borrows or steals the stellia of revealing from mm -hmm. uh the museum in cairo and uh you can look at all the wars and stuff in the middle east of being evidence that it you know it would have been nice to get it out of there before the arab spring perhaps but it it remains it hasn't been you know it's not that all these uh, it's, it's not that the museum has been burnt to the ground and the artifact lost. So, uh, speaking of burnt to the ground, though, uh, uh, your house. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fun one. That was a interesting prediction when that came true. Essentially, at least the first part of it. Yeah, um, it's yeah. That's a bit weird because you're supposed to get the stele of revealing itself and put it in the house, and then uh, it will be, you know. It, it, it will well, lock last, it in, yeah, last lock forever, and then uh, even if it's burned with fire, it will be. Anyway, yeah, it, it's sort of like with the house. It's sort of like we would have lost the stele if it had been <laughs> if it had been in the house. So what I'm referring to is, but your holy place shall be untouched throughout the centuries, though with fire and sword it be burnt down and shattered. Yet an invisible house there standeth and shall stand until the fall of the great equinox. Yeah. And so uh, a few years ago, Boleskine House, which Crowley took as being that house, uh, was burnt down and uh, has since been getting rebuilt. It's, uh, that's, see, this is, because it will stand there forever, and even if it's burnt down, a spiritual house will remain. If it had never been burnt down... That would have fulfilled the prophecy, <laughs> and it has been burned down. So that's taken as a fulfillment of prophecy. But I, you know, I uh, like I like I said, I I kind of I, I kind of think what's important about uh, um, the book of the law is the way is the way it spiritualizes uh, or is the way it inspires Crowley to create a system. Of, of magic that spiritualizes Nietzsche's teachings in a way that allows them to be applied mm -hmm. so that uh, we can now make practical steps to move into the new uh, aeon using our magic and meditation work uh, without, um, without trying to destroy ourselves in the way Buddhist monks, Christian monks, various yogic practitioners 
do. I, I we we have a we have an approach uh, devoted to what Yogananda called self-realization, and and I I think that's really and not just self-realization the way Yogananda meant it, where like I realize that I am God, but that I uh, but that I have a purity doctrine that allows me to fully integrate all aspects of my being rather than rather than thinking some things are are, are pure and some things yeah, are Yeah, rather impure. than thinking of Malkuth as the dingleberry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, so um, so am, I, am I impressed by this stuff? I don't know. Maybe not really, but but I'm I, I'm, in, I'm impressed by what it ins- what what the text itself inspires me and other people to do, and especially by what it inspired Crowley to build when he built Thelema. Um Yeah, and and I mean to me the the most convincing thing as I as I keep saying is just this idea that like I've done forgeries. This is not how I do forgeries. <laughs> I believe in the reception. I I believe in the reception, but. But I believe in the reception kind of as a historian because we have no evidence to disprove anything Crowley said about it. Well, again, success you is just, your proof. Right? If you just read the texts that tell the story of the reception, and it, you know, and it is so unlike anything else Crowley ever wrote, that uh, that I, I believe it's a re- I, I, I believe it's it, it happened sort of the way he said it did because if it didn't, he would have he would have made it look like something else. Well, you know. Th- the reason for kind of believing in something or for taking something up in that sense is uh, essentially you could say that it's giving you some kind of courage and some kind of usefulness and some kind of meaning. And uh, there's that passage in the first portion of this chapter, which was uh, um, genius goes with courage and the sense of shame and guilt with defeatism. So... The nihilistic kind of defeatism is the thing that Nietzsche was warning against. And this is kind of giving us, this. the Book of the Law gives us something in response to that. Wow. Thanks very much, Darren. This was great. Thank you. Love is the law, love under will. Love is the law, love under will. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. This book was uh, inserted into the, um, the appendices for book four. Uh the set of books that are uh, book four, volume one, yoga, and then book four, volume two, magic. Then volume three is uh, magic and theory and practice, and this is four, part four. Yeah, so it's not an appendix at all. No. Today we're looking at the Equinox of the Gods, <laughs> which is a uh, not an appendix, but an actual book from uh, the four. It's the fourth book of the the book called Book Four. You want to hit? You want to start? You want to start again? <laughs> <laughs> we can roll through this if you like. Yeah, <laughs> I might just have to go with it anyway. Unless, of course, this would just make people hit that old skip button. Um, We're not coming off as particularly authoritative. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs>